I once wrote about a petty car thief in Prague, Czech Republic. He started the usual way by using scissors to cut the wires and hotwire the engine to drive away. But in the early 2000s, that was starting to give away to key fobs. These initial sets of key fobs were convenient. You could unlock and lock your car from a few feet away. And at the time, while you couldn't necessarily start the car, you still needed the fob to present when you hit the start button so that the car would start. As with most advances in automotive, this technology started at the higher end models. So for a young streetwise petty thief who wanted to make a big score, he needed it up his game. In the early days, there were not too many of these key fobs. So entropy, the randomization, it wasn't very robust. It was a mere 40-bit key length. And in fact, you could map out all the possible combinations of this 40-bit key length on a typical laptop computer. Even so, the car manufacturers carved out large groups of codes. So if you wanted a Mercedes, you only needed to generate the keys in a particular range. So what this petty thief did, he walked around Prague looking for new Mercedes, and then he used his laptop and an RFID antenna to generate all the possible combinations for the Mercedes key codes until one hit. And then he'd do it again. And he'd do it again. The downside for him was that when he was finally arrested, his laptop had all the key codes still on there. And they further linked him to some 150 other car thefts in the area. Needless to say, he did some serious time. Since then, car manufacturers have improved on this. Certainly no one uses 40-bit encryption anymore. So you would think that when a revolutionary car company like Tesla comes along, maybe they figured out this whole key thing. As Kevin Mahaffey of Lookout said, Tesla is just a big network server on wheels. Well, in a moment, you'll hear from someone who figured out that something much simpler, Bluetooth, yeah, Bluetooth, might just be the key to getting inside any Tesla. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about hacking Teslas, or rather, new product called Tesla Key that prevents somebody from hacking into cars. Well, you'll get the idea. So I've always wanted to go to Cansec West. It's in Vancouver, and it's the home of Pwn to Own, which is the contest where basically if you hack into something, you own it. It's yours. You can take it away. And lately, the prizes have been Teslas. Pretty, pretty cool. Anyway, I've always been wanting to go. And finally, I got to go this year. And unfortunately, COVID is still raging around the world. So attendance was mm, light, to say the least. However, the quality of the speakers was still very high. So my name is Martin Hefford, and I'm a security researcher. 20 years ago, Martin participated in the early stages of Bluetooth Special Interest Group, or Bluetooth SIG. This is the standards body that oversees the development of Bluetooth standards and licensing. And ironically, the Bluetooth SIG met in the same hotel where Cansac West is being held today. So we were cooperating with the Bluetooth SIG back in the days when we were discovering Bluetooth security loopholes. And they were approaching us, asking us if we could assist them during these unplug fests, they, they call them. These were events where they would ensure that all the Bluetooth manufacturers and all the devices they make would be able to talk to each other. Because after all, Bluetooth is a device or manufacturer independent uh, standard. So what exactly is Bluetooth? I mean, how exactly is it different from Wi-Fi or NFC? Of course, it's a range thing and it's a bandwidth thing. And of course, it's a frequency thing. I first became aware of Martin's work back in 2010 when I was writing When Gadgets Betray Us. 
Martin had observed that certain manufacturers were using fixed pins, such as 000, to make it easier for customers to pair their mobile devices with their cars so they could make calls, listen to music. It was also much easier for Martin to pair his device and in doing so, listen in on nearby conversations in nearby cars. Think about it. The consequences of this could be that a police officer could be listening into a car ahead of them on the road, even if that person wasn't even currently making a call. So the car whisperer happened, I think it got first presented at What the Hack in, in Netherlands. That was a camp organized by um, the Nether or the Dutch uh, computer organization. And uh, the car whisperer was an attempt to show manufacturers of hands-free sets that a pre-programmed pin that cannot be changed by the, by the user would not be the ideal way to handle security in this respect. So the thing was that one major German car manufacturer had the standard pin of one, two, three, four. And to the other hand, that Bluetooth radio was connectable for the whole time. That means like when the car was started and drove away, anyone knowing that pre, uh, very well-known passkey was able to connect to this Bluetooth hands-free set in the car and would have been able to listen into conversations within the car or inject audio. And that's what we were going for just for a fun project and, and in order to show that this an, is an issue with the technology. So the car whisperer, it had a cute name, it had a video, it had a movie poster, it had a full campaign. But that's not how it actually came about. What the heck was in, in parallel with uh, DEFCON and Black Hat, and I think Adam and Marcel, the two other more active members at the time, um, they were leaving the What the Hack to me. The organizer of What the Hack, uh, Rob Ronkripe, asked me, well, Martin, your talk is nice. We already know everything you're going to talk about. So come up with something new, please. It's, it's all, always like that with conferences. And I, I totally get it, right? It, they want to have that unique selling point for their paying audience. And uh, so I thought about a thing that I thought would be fun. It's not been like that terrible, terrible security stuff that you could like own anything, but I think it's, it's very relatable because everybody knows. So I do have a car and it's really handy to speak without having to attach a cable and everything. So people knew that this was something they use and suddenly they became aware that there might be some potential for abuse. Next to buying a house, a car is probably the most expensive purchase you'll ever make. So how do you protect that car? Traditionally, you've had a key, a physical key that you insert into a lock. It turns the tumblers, it releases that lock. And also that key is used in the ignition. Lately though, this has turned into a RFID tag, which is a fob that you carry in your pocket. And the fob reaches out to the car and it will unlock the car or lock the car. And when you're in the car, it will identify yourself to the car so that when you press the start button, you can drive. Lately, this has moved even further to your phone. You can now have an app which does all of that correspondence back and forth with the car. And this is what Tesla has adopted. In fact, if you want to get a physical key or a key fob, you have to pay extra on top of what you paid for the Tesla. So they're really pushing this technology. Martin wanted to look into it. He wanted to see what was going on there. And at Kansek West, he reported on a flaw that might affect not only Tesla, but other cars thinking about doing this in the future as well. So in theory, I'd say whenever a car manufacturers pick up similar ideas, it might be possible to have a similar attack there as well. So what I was talking about at Kensec was very specific to the Tesla way of doing that. 
And to my knowledge, there is almost, I, I can very well imagine that a lot of car manufacturers are going to copy the way that Tesla is doing that because I believe Tesla is very innovative in that way. And I'm pretty sure there will be copycats because they cannot protect this kind of procedure, right? It's, it's, once it's known, people will copy. But so that was very specific to Tesla. So I couldn't just take that and go to another car manufacturer's product and say, well, works. Very unlikely. In 2010, researcher Don Bailey said at Black Hat that year that it took him about two hours to figure out how to intercept wireless SMS messages sent between a car and the network and then recreate them on his laptop computer. That isn't quite what we're doing here. You know, back in the days, I was not really paying attention to a lot of the other things going on. So, for example, SMS to, to the car, not so much an issue because, uh, at least not in, in my world, because SMS enabled cars or connected cars uh, with, with a, a SIM card in it were not so much a thing, to me at least. So maybe some, some upper uh, level cars did have it, but not the average car to my knowledge. So, but of course there is always, whenever there's a, a surface to attack, people will most likely try to attack it. There have been uh, car hacking attempts. For example, a few years back, there was semi cam car. It's like one of the attacks I was look looking into in order to maybe find some inspiration for the Tesla key. In 2015, Sammy Kankar debuted at DEF CON an attack he called a roll jam attack. The idea is that when you push the unlock button on a key fob, it sends out a modulated radio signal that gets picked up by a receiver in the car. If the modulated code matches the cars, then the door will unlock. Here's the roll jam part. A hacker places a wallet-sized device somewhere on the targeted car. And then when the owner tries to unlock the vehicle by pressing the unlock button on their remote, the device jams that signal so that the vehicle doesn't hear it and at the same time intercepts that same code. When the owner of the car then tries to use the key remote a second time to unlock the vehicle, the device jams the signal and steals the second code, but at the same time sends that very first code to the car, allowing the door to open. Now the hacker has a unique code in his back pocket that can be used at a later time because the car never really heard that second signal. The catch was that he was blocking the, the frequency and was like collecting um, rolling key um, attempts or like, like authorization responses in a way and he could later on use in order to unlock the car when the owner was not around. So I thought about that. I really liked the idea, but overall the, the way that Tesla is using the technology would would make it really hard or it's not even the same scheme so it could not be easily replicated that way but of course recording uh, authorization responses from the car was something that i included in the talk it's a little more complicated because there's more advanced cryptography at work but um, yeah maybe it's along the same lines so there's the replay attack, and then there's the relay attack. One, you're simply capturing it, as with Sammy Kankar's device, and replaying it at a later time and date. The other, you're actively being a man in the middle, and you're relaying the data from one person to another. So what uh, the video that we published, that shows the relay attack. So we, we just pass on the messages that we receive from the phone key and just give that, feed it into the Tesla. And Tesla doesn't uh, care so much and talks back to that feeding device, which then transfers all the messages back to the phone. So that's a relay attack. The replay attack, that means that a pre-recorded message is just sent at a different time to the vehicle and would work in, in ways of unlocking it and, and so on. So I haven't tried that actively, but uh, that was one of the observations I had during the talk because when, when I was programming or like developing the Tesla key app, 
I had a, a lot of uh, messages going back and forth, and um, uh, that was just one observation that this token, which is used for authentication requests, so when, once you approached your car and you, you uh, tapped the door handle, this is a signal to the car that somebody wants to enter the car, and it would then ask for authorization, would find out, well, is there a, a phone key in the area? Usually when the phone key sees the car, it's connecting and says, here, I'm key with that, that and that ID, uh, just for you to know, dear car. And the car then knows, all right, so this is uh, the right uh, key material that this phone has to use in order to get authorized. But the key by itself is not enough. There's also a challenge. It's, it's, a, in, uh, it's called a token in that context. And this token changes over time and is sent together with that authorization request to the phone key. The phone key then understands that message and encrypts it back to the sender, to the vehicle, with that secret key uh, the car and the phone have and that challenge token. And only then the car would unlock. So the challenge token or the token that Tesla uses for that should change per request, I'd say. So it doesn't, even, even better or even worse, <laughs> it doesn't change on a daily basis so much. So I, you know, I, I did that temporal tool and what that does, it enumerates all the keys that are whitelisted in a car. So you could ask the car, so how many keys are in use in your database? The car would answer and would tell the, the other device that is questioning all the details about the crypto counter, the session token, and that's done because it could be that the phone key gets out of sync for some reason and needs a way to resync. And that by itself is not a not a threat. But I saw that the crypto counter would that that was not the issue, but the token used for the challenges did not change. And even after using that token a few times for authentication responses, so like positive, at least at that point, the car should go ahead and say, all right, I, do an, I make a new token so that the next time the, the phone key has to respond differently. So, and in theory or very practical theory, this token if it's not changing, enables attackers to record these um, responses of a phone key to authorization requests. I do not know how long this time frame is, but from observation, it's a few hours maybe. So again, let's take a step back a moment. I have a key fob that lets me in and out of my car, but it's not a Tesla. If I had a Tesla, I would have an app instead of a key fob. And it's that app that we're talking about that allows you to open the doors and start your engine. Right. So the app is replacing the key fob. And that's a very convenient thing because, after all, it's one piece less to carry around. So it's a synergy, convergence, however you want to call it. It's I like it. And it's uh, an application on the phone that is making use of the Bluetooth low energy stack in order to send crypt encrypted and not encrypted messages to the car interface based on that protocol, which is called VCSEC. Aha, so VCSEC, that sounds very promising, particularly if you're a researcher trying to figure all this out. So what is VCSEC? VCSEC, yeah. I was wrong in the in the first uh, assumption that this is uh, vehicle control secure or security or something related to security. Uh, VCSEC, I found out later, is uh, vehicle control secondary. And yeah, uh, makes a lot of sense, right? Because 
Of course, it has to do with security in a way, but it's not its main purpose. So what is the purpose of this vehicle control secondary in Teslas? started looking into that when I was finding out about that message format. So I was able to be in the middle when the car talks to the phone and vice versa. So I was receiving these messages, which I was in the first sight not really able to make sense of them. Uh, I figured quickly that like the first two bytes were length related. So it would just tell the recipient of the message how many bytes are going to follow and but the rest was like a miracle to me <laughs> first but then I found a tool it's called PBTK and I found out about protobuf which is a binary version of JSON JSON is a textual human readable format for data and uh, protobuf has initially been developed by Google uh, is shrinking that down by making uh, a binary format from it. So text elements get replaced by numbers, really small, 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 really good fit for the Bluetooth low energy technology because it's limited bandwidth there. And I found out that it's really easy to extract the VCSEC proto file, which is exactly that vocabulary for that proto buff implementation. And having that and having the proto C tool enabled me to translate or to deserialize all these messages I was receiving back to text format, which was really handy, right? Because then it made, made a lot of sense <laughs> what, what's going on there, right? Mm -hmm. And with version or app version four, they switched it and uh, the PBTK tool stopped working for me. So the PBTK tool is like on GitHub and I was also asking maybe they could extend that to Square or Square Wire. So it's, it's a, another implementation for the same kind of thing. So it's compatible with each, with each other. But um, different manufacturer, different annotations in the class files. That means uh, I had to hack a script which is not as good as uh, the PBTK tool. I just grabbed all the class files for certain annotations and scribbled them out and out comes a protofile which is more or less to the original. Not the same though, but uh, works for me. <laughs> and is also on, in the GitHub repository now for people to play with that. And um, that that's a, the first step you need to do if you're talking VCSEC or you want to understand VCSEC, you have to have that vocabulary. Having that, you can decode or deserialize the messages. And then a little bit of guesswork has to be used as well or guesswork that is backed on the obfuscated code you have. Right. So, for example, it took me a while to figure out when there is an authorization request, how would you answer it to that? There is something which is encrypted, which is like the black box of the message. You would see it's crypto counter such and such, signature such and such. And you know, right, it has to do with that encryption that I know how it works. But still, what's inside that encrypted bit? that's hard to find out and you could look in the code and it's really hard and to to trace back where the information comes from that is going into that uh, crypto uh, text but finally also with guessing there's been uh, this vc sec message type it's called authorization response like in retrospect easy right <laughs> But uh, also there, there's fields that I had to guess because I never saw an original message because an original message would only be available from the phone, right? And the phone, I did not succeed extracting the keys from the phone because I'm not good at that. I think it's very doable and I had, I had a discussion yesterday as well. So I think uh, uh, dynamic instrumentation with Frida for the people who know about that could work there and that's also what i tried already but i did not find the right places to you would set a hook 
a hook means that whenever a certain function is called, you are able by dynamic instrumentation to tell what this function is going to return or you can see what it's going to return. And once there is a function like get secret or something along these lines, you would hook that and get the secret key, which is somewhere buried in the device. So it's not not just lying there, it's, it's using device encryption and it's pretty good protected. So one of the ways that you can unlock your Tesla is through an NFC card that owners receive upon purchase. This is less convenient than the phone as a key option, which works on any Bluetooth-enabled device as soon as the car driver approaches. But the NFC card is supposed to clearly identify the owner and thus allows additional functions that the attacker might be able to use in order to steal. For example, there could be multiple owners of the card. And in particular, what Martin found was that after an NFC card swipe, it is possible to store a brand new key for that car in the first 130 seconds after it's swiped. So what's interesting is a few months ago, Tesla had an app outage. A few users were unable to open their cars or use their cars in general because the app could not access the server. This only lasted for a few hours, but it does show some of the vulnerabilities that could happen if you're not connected. So I, I uh, became aware of that. It was a very small outage, but it's not related to the Bluetooth backend. Actually, the, the good thing about the Bluetooth phone key is that it works offline. It's good and bad in a way, but I think it was especially designed to work under circumstances where there is no network coverage and so on. Like, let's say you are in the, in the underground garage and you want to use your car, that should work without inconveniences. So I think Tesla did a very good job in making sure the technology works because people using that should have trust in it and, and not bother so much and I think they, they did a pretty good job with that. Of course, uh, to the other side of, of convenience and, and assuring, ensuring things, there might be the security factor which is not as important at this stage of the product design maybe. You know, it's always hard to, to estimate or to assume how processes work in big companies like that. So, as said, the engineering looks very good and I think there's really good people working on the product. But my assumption is also that there's a high fluctuation, right? And people that get to Tesla do really have high potential, high energy, and then maybe they leave the company for whatever reason and a very good idea is not being finished. So when you see a talk like this at CanSec West or any other conference, you're probably thinking, oh, wow, they probably just pulled that out of their back pocket and presented it. No, in this case, it took several years for Martin to get to this point where he could report on this type of research. So the, the research at all, it, it began earlier. I said it was June of 2019. That's when I started doing uh, that uh, Tesla radar app, which does not really have to do with the research I was presenting at Kensec. So the research for Kensec uh, started in June again or July of 2021. And, um, you know, the first impression was, well, there's this tool. Let's give it a try. I gave it a try and I was disappointed. And to the other hand, I was really proud that this worked just out of the box. So I had two Raspberry Pis. I did that kind of relay that's also visible in that YouTube video we did. And I was proud it worked or was happy it worked right out of the box. 
But then I was like leaving my my key in the office with the one Raspberry Pi and I took the other one and also took my NFC card with me, of course, for fallback and, and stuff. And I was hopping in the car and driving around, right? Like quite a distance from the key. So at that point, I didn't know that they wouldn't even check the, the GPS location of the key versus the GPS location of the car which was one of the ideas that I had later on for that Tesla key product. So before he looked at the mobile keys, the phone as a key option in Teslas, Martin created something he called the Tesla radar. It takes advantage of another issue, the fact that much of the car's data is broadcast out to the larger world. That is, if you know how to listen. The issue was in 2019, that's when I got my car in Europe, that was like I was one of the first ones to actually have that Model 3. I pre-ordered it and I wanted to have it. I was blinded by that low price tag. They were like in the media, you know, they said it's going to be 35,000. Well, I said, I pre-order. Wow. And I ended up paying almost twice for that, you know, but that's how it goes. It was possible at the time and I'm not regretting it. So it's, it's a nice car. But I found out that this Bluetooth signal is following me all the time, right? So it's just like the car is visible, it's blurping out his, her, its name. <laughs> and everybody who wanted to could see that, right? So just imagine I'm self-employed, but if you had an employer, you know, he, he, she wouldn't even have to, to have a time tracking for you, right? Knows exactly when you're in the office or not. Your neighbor would know whether you're home or not. Burglars would know whether you're home or not. Things uh, could get complicated. And there's different technologies. Like I mentioned the AirTag yesterday as well. So the AirTag had that stalking problem like in February this year a big outcry why because uh, people were giving or like putting these really small air, air tags into purses and pockets of people they wanted to stock which is not okay and and Apple reacted immediately and everything was more or less fine it's not really fine so it's still trackable you can avoid this non-tracking option but there has been a big outcry. So what I do not get, Apple did really a good job in obfuscating their address. So if you find an AirTag, you could not say it's the same AirTag that you saw earlier or not, because only Apple is able to do that. And this is not true for Tesla. Everybody who has a Bluetooth phone can see or a Bluetooth device can see this car and could recognize it the next day without even knowing some of the secrets for the case of Apple. You would have to know that. For the case of Tesla, you don't. So I thought that's a privacy issue. I'm not a lawyer, and that's actually a sentence you hear quite often <laughs> in that IT security scene, but I'm not a lawyer as well. And I do not know how this is a, C uh, a GDPR breach or if this would even be a thing. I thought then, so maybe me as the Tesla radar programmer and the guy who's collecting that data now maybe has a GDPR issue because I collected that data, so I concentrated it. So maybe that's an issue now. But as long as nobody approaches me, I think it's fine. But sh showcasing that anyone or any organization with the means of having like several of these sensors that would sense Tesla cars coming by would be able to track one specific vehicle over an area and that could lead to a problem because usually the driver of a vehicle is almost always the same or belongs to a very small group so it makes it personal uh, uh, personable or personally identify you. I think uh, in Berlin there was one of these things uh, they had these Audi cars back then and I, 
actually in the government, right? So every politician who was entitled could have that uh, service uh, to be uh, driven from one government building to another one or like to, to appointments and stuff. And uh, Audi, as I said, has been this, this um, company that did that car whisper or enabled the car whisper. Uh, I think they had um, the connection. They said, okay, if it's this Bluetooth address I'm spotting, it's uh, our, it's, it's Mrs. Merkel in the car, right? <laughs> and um, so this became a problem. So, and this could become a problem again in a different context. I'm pretty sure the German um, politicians would not drive a Tesla because it's not a German make, right? <laughs> They are pretty nationalistic there. And, um, but if you think about that, if, if the, the, the incentive is high enough, so I could roll out one of these networks easily and not tell people. And it's, you know, the, the difference with Tesla radar, it's, it's known to people who, who are interested in it. I'm not trying to hide it, but I could, right? Everybody could hide that, that kind of a system and could then spy out a certain group of people that own Teslas, just in very general terms. Martin also found that there's something to do with proximity. In other words, he had a unit in the wrong place in the car, and it didn't open the car. The Raspberry Pi was not in the right place. However, if it was logically near a door, if it was near where a passenger might actually be getting into the car, it did work. Yeah, I think Tesla upped their game when it comes to device detection and especially where uh, the device is located at. And I think it has to do also with developments going on for the Roadster because the Roadster doesn't have door handles. So <laughs> to the one hand, it's really cool because it's really flat doors and, and people are puzzled by that. To the other hand, uh, yeah, door handle, I like it, <laughs> but that's just me. Uh, but the thing is, you approach your car with your phone in the pocket and the car knows which door to open, right? And that's why they have to have this kind of uh, high resolution location, whatever you want to call it. And I know that Tesla's also uh, introduced um, ultra wideband in their pet patent, patents and also like driver-wise. I think they are experimenting with uh, ultra wideband, which is also used for air tags, by the way. Mm -hmm. And um, because the location resolution would be higher. So I think in order to, to exactly tell where the device is, that would help. But the thing you are referring to is that when I was doing my experiments, my Raspberry Pi had a really strong Bluetooth dongle on it and it was located in the, f in the trunk of my car because uh, there was a, a battery with that and, and, that and a GSM device. And I, I was able to talk to it, but the thing was, with from one firmware version to the next one, they introduced this kind of um, signal checking. And of course, I was uh, falling out of the clouds because my talk got accepted at Kensec. So this would not have been a, 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 a game stopper, right? So I would still have been able to talk about that topic. But of course, like the video, and once you have that video and you show it and people like it, you would have to say, yeah, but it's not working anymore. That would have been not so nice. So I was really happy to find out about that signal readout alert that they have. So they would send a, a message to the phone, which in a way is not really making sense a lot because the phone is there to unlock the car but gets an alert now hey the signal readout is wrong dear phone i do not unlock kind of it doesn't make sense because usually it's a malicious device trying to do that and why should that get that information right. mm -hmm. so changing the dongle on my raspberry pi which was located in the trunk 
changed that because the signal readout was more normal again. So it's, it's just been, you can compare that to an ultra uh, high intense light and you would be blinded like all the sensors that, that present their signal readouts are blinded by that light, right? And now I, I'm, I'm using a small LED instead and the readout is making more sense and the car is now able to detect what door I would be at, right? So that was a moment where I was really scared that the talk wouldn't be happening as I was planning it. Just before Kansek West, a British security group, NCC, announced a Bluetooth BLE vulnerability that was very similar to what Martin was going to talk about. NCC warned that the Tesla Model 3 and Model Y employ Bluetooth low-energy-based passive entry key systems, and this could allow a link-layer relay attack conclusively that defeats existing applications of proximity authenticate. According to NCC, by forwarding the data from a baseband to the link layer, the hack gets past known relay attack protections, including encrypted BLE communications, because it circumvents the upper layers of the Bluetooth stack and the need to decrypt that. This is very similar to what Martin was going to present. Yeah, you know, like uh, a friend posted that because um, before I left, we just uh, met in Salzburg and uh, and had a coffee and I was telling him about that talk I'm going to give at Kansag and uh, he was really into it and uh, he sent me one day before I had the talk that article from Bleeping Computer I believe and there this NCC group uh, presented exactly what I was going to tell people at the Kansag talk and they even did a video and uh, the shock moment was there, sure. But then I thought, well, they, they just went the first step, whereas I just went the whole way already, in a way, right? So I understood the VCSAC protocol, whatever, and they just did the first thing that I was doing last year. So I thought, well, they explained it really nice. Why not using that or referring to that even because people should know about that? And I think showing that more than one group at the same time had success in that shows that there might be a few people not talking about that issue, maybe taking advantage of that already and, and for a longer time maybe. So I think it's a good thing after all. But still, of course, in that situation where you have your talk, you don't want to hear that. So Tesla got some of the things right. For example, the encryption is good. The cryptography is good. However, there's probably some more areas where they could have obfuscated the data better. So talking about obfuscation, you are referring to the code, which, which I was decompiling from the official Tesla app. And mm -hmm. talking about obfuscation, it's more or less a standard thing that makes decompiling Java code or Kotlin code in this uh, respect hard. That means that variables and function names are reduced to like numbers and letters that do not really say anything. So if you read that, it, it, it's not a, uh, you know, if you think like in a, in a functions like get crypto key, that would be really descriptive but now it's called F112, whatever. So it's obfuscated, it's not encrypted or anything, but it's really hard to understand. And of course, there is tools that help de-obfuscating that, but it requires a lot of work. And I think in, in, the, uh, in the work I did for the Tesla app, the code base of the things I was interested in was quite well separated from the rest of the code and so the code base for doing the deobfuscation was really small even though it's really getting to your nerves if you want to try that and you have to note down and this is the signature of a function they call and these are the imports and they all have just one letter it's it's a dot java because you end up getting java java class files and uh, it's a lot of 
work which I do not like to do a lot. So it's like very, what's the word, like anal, <laughs> tedious. <laughs> so the vehicle identification number, it's kind of a, a unique ID to the car, and yet it's not really that unique. There are certain elements, kind of like a MAC address, that are spelled out, and they basically tell you where the car was made and when. So the VIN is the vehicle identification number, which is very, it is not very, it, it is unique to the vehicle, and it encodes some information like the build date, the, the build location, the manufacturer, and the model. And um, the thing is that this VIN is never transmitted via Bluetooth directly. So I thought, you know, whenever you look for devices in your proximity or, and you're next to your Tesla, you would see a, a Bluetooth name that starts out with a capital S and then has some hex encoded data in there. And then it, it ends with a C, a D, a P or an R. Nowadays, you only would see the C detail, but these eight bytes in the middle that are hex encoded, like 16 characters, I was always curious about them, what they really do, right? So I did some crypto analysis very early on, right? And I did not get the point that this was based on the win, which totally makes sense in a way, if you think about that logically, why should they have more than one identifier per car, right? But um, I didn't quite get it back then, but playing around, you know, I was starting with Tesla key and I was, and, and uh, CyberChef is one of the open source uh, programs a lot of programmers use in order to try out stuff, right? Base 64 encode stuff for a test and maybe do a SHA hash. And I started playing around with the crypto keys and everything. And suddenly I saw a part of that 16 byte sign uh, uh, signature that I was receiving from my car but it was just a part of that SHA-1 hash. So I figured, all right, they crop that SHA hash and just take the first eight bytes from the original 20 and they would use that as a VIN identifier. Because once I knew it's SHA-1 they use for hash, I was looking in, in the code base and some of these functions that are externally, like, like the crypto library, you could tell there is a SHA going on because I think the function even is called SHA-1. Or maybe, I, I don't really remember, or maybe it was in the logging texts, you know, and in the logging texts, they were talking about that VIN identifier, which of course makes total sense to have that VIN identifier, which is not the VIN, but usually using a SHA-1 hash, this is a one-way crypto function. So it's really hard to reverse that process but you could and that's what i did do a rainbow table that means every possible win you pre-calculate that hash and crop it the way tesla does it and then you have it in the database and then you can look it up right and um, doing this database of all possible wins is quite a research effort because you would have to find out well Gigafactory X does such and such amount of cars and Model X and Model S and Model 3 and Model Y. You have to break that down and kind of come up with numbers that make sense. Luckily, I had a lot of data from retrieved from different people uh, participating in Tesla radar. So I had a lot of these hashes lying around on, on, in my database. So I could just give it a try and see whether this would fail or succeed to become a win again. And so the, the hit rate at the moment is pretty high. Of course, that's an effort you would have to keep up in order to get new win numbers in and corrected assumptions about the serial and the, the number of cars they, they produce a, per year at a certain location. But I think I, I like that very much and um, it enabled the app to be able to tell whether this is a Model 3 or Model Y. And I also added a Twitter bot that is like whenever a user 
sees a car for the very first time, it will not um, twit, uh, tweet about the, the VIN number itself, but it would say user XYZ uh, spotted a 2021 Model 3 dual motor in whatever area. So it's, it's, that's what Tesla radar does. And so I think that's like a constant stream of events that hopefully makes people use the app because it's kind of, you know, I put time in there and I would like people to, to have fun with that. So we've identified the flaws. What possible attacks could you possibly see from something like this? So the attacks that become possible are all related to the fact that somebody with a legitimate key is using the car in front of the attacker. So this is like the, prem the, the premise or the prerequisite for, for the attacks to work. And that's also the reason why Pwn2Own, -own, for example, he had Kansak West considered these attacks that I was going to uh, show out of scope and um, which is sad a little bit because I put so much time in it. So if I summed up all the time, it's been like a lot of evenings uh, because I, I used my private time for that. And of course, whenever there was a project uh, for the company, for my company, where I do uh, security audits for small and medium sized companies in Salzburg. Of course, uh, this has priority, right? And, and then it's like one, two weeks pause. And then the hard part is to get back to the research and find the way or find the, the point where you wanted to continue. And, and that made it a little challenging. But um, it's been a lot of time and I thought, well, that would have been really cool if I would have gotten whatever, like 100,000, you know, just to break even. <laughs> so Martin was communicating this with Tesla and Tesla was basically saying, yeah, we know this is an issue, but they didn't really do anything about it. Uh, the key thing, yeah. That was disappointing because yeah. they said, yeah, we know about that. It's a known limitation. That's the words they were using of that system. And uh, that kind of, uh, you know, until that point in time, I was really, I'd say I'm still, but back then it was more, I was a big fan of Tesla and said they make things the way I would probably do it if I had the means, right. <laughs> you know, like, an ideal they they did cool stuff modern technology all the things that i like as a technical person right and they were combining it into a car even better and i needed a car back then because my old car was old enough and so all these factors made me a tesla fan but seeing how they would go along with these kind of threats you know like I paid twice as much money as I wanted to originally and then thinking about that somebody could take advantage of my car and steal it or just unmount the rearview mirrors you know would be really detrimental but that was a very disappointing moment and so I thought well I will ask um, Tesla about if they know about it if they are aware and the answer I got kind of demotivated me and motivated me at the same time because what Tesla said, all right, we know about that. We think you should use pin to drive and that's what we recommend all our customers. So, but uh, we, we are aware, no bug bounty, whatever. So that means all the time that you put in there as a researcher is devalued in a way because if you do it for, for the bug bounty, you are really dependent on whatever this guy at Tesla thinks about that. And so my feeling about, about bug bounties is that a lot of time is kind of wasted by the bug bounty companies. They profit from that. And I'm not really certain that this is the way to go in general. Today, Martin's research continues. Yeah, you know, there, there's one thing that I'm going to present at uh, the Recon in Montreal, 
Uh, I'm not going to talk about that because I promised it to the organizer. Same thing like back then in, the, in the What the Heck. And uh, because it has to be something novel, right? Yeah. And uh, it's, it's also something that is a really common situation that gets exploited. And um, I'm not even sure if I'm bothering contacting Tesla about that beforehand. Because <laughs> what's going to happen is, all right, we know already, but it delays my work process, right? Because it's maybe taken two weeks and the conference starts in two weeks. And to the other hand, there's no real downside to uh, not communicating it with Tesla. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I got a little disappointed with the process that Tesla has there because I always get to hear the same thing. Oh, thanks for your contribution. Not interested, but thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this sort of sounds like Apple. Before the bug bounty program there, if you approached Apple with a vulnerability, they wouldn't necessarily respond. Maybe they'd fix it. Maybe they wouldn't. It was a black box. They sure as hell weren't going to acknowledge that you had found the problem in their problem. And sometimes they'd even revoke the developer's licenses to individuals who did find flaws. <clears throat> Charlie Miller. Why the companies are doing that? You know, they have to because they, in the first step, did a bug bounty program in order to look cool. Right. So that's the price they have to pay now. Now they have to have an answering machine. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, to them, it's a lot of financial benefit because they do not have to pay all the research time which flows into that kind of process. Of course, having your own researchers does not make a lot of sense because they are not really um, objective anymore because they're paid by you and now they are causing problems. Only big companies like Google with Google X is doing that, right? Uh, Google Zero, not Google X, it's different. Yeah. Project Zero, I'm, I'm referring to. And um, they do that, but Google is, is a different company. And I think that Apple and Tesla just want to, it's, it's what would be the word? It's not greenwashing, but it's like, secure washing themselves with a bug bounty program. So instead of paying people to find vulnerabilities and report them to the bug bounty program, companies are instead minimizing the findings and then denying the researchers the money that they deserve. Oh, maybe it's been found by somebody else. That's also possible, but they wouldn't tell it because they don't have to. And it's like uh, speaking with an oracle. Maybe, maybe something comes out, and maybe it's good. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not happy with that, but I'm not the only one. So I'm curious to see what what the industry comes up with next, because bug bounties maybe are like over. Who knows? So they are a good chance if you are like getting into the profession. You want to play some some games with a product and maybe win some money but it's it's not for um you know paying your daily uh, expenses right that you have to rely on so it's it's not a, a a secure income so to say once somebody at tesla decides no it's like all right now i'm starving to death <laughs> I'd really like to thank Martin Herford for coming on the show and talking about the Bluetooth research he's done on Tesla. The Tesla Key application will be released in Q3 2022, and it will be available for both iPhone and Android. You can get on the waiting list now at teslakey.com. With digital convenience, there's often a price. And if it means a bad actor can create a wireless key for your new Tesla, that price is pretty steep. Fortunately, there are some good guys, like Martin, who are looking out for all of us. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative information security podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. I don't want you to miss out. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For the Hacker Mine, I remain the Bluetooth-enabled Robert Famosi.